Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Down a Rabbit Hole with me, your host, Cece Suarez. In last week's episode, I mentioned how mostly all of these family annihilator cases are men in their 30s. Well, according to the National Institute of Justice, 91% of all family annihilators are men, and further studies show that typically they're white men in their 30s, just like we said. But today we're going to explore that other 9%. How easily can I overdose on over-the-counter medications? Can 500 milligrams of Benadryl kill a 125-pound woman? How long does it take to die from hypothermia while drowning in a car? These were Sarah Hart's last internet searches from her phone before her wife Jennifer drove them, along with their six adopted children, off of a 100-foot cliff to their death. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Down a Rabbit Hole podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Viewer discretion is advised. Jennifer and Sarah Hart were both from South Dakota, and they began their relationship when they were both studying elementary education at Northern State University. They got married in 2009, and they moved to Minnesota in 2004, and there they both worked at Turburgers, which is a department store similar to JCPenney's or Sears, and then they moved to Washington, and Sarah became a assistant manager at Kohl's. You might be wondering, how in the hell do you take care of two adults and six children on an income of a retail manager, much less an assistant retail manager? The Hearts received funds from the state of Texas, which covered the adoption of their six children and made up for roughly 50% of their income, which I had no idea that adoptive parents received funding like that. I thought it was just for foster parents who received government subsidies. According to multiple reports, the Hearts likely received more than $40,000 a year to care for their children. Unfortunately, now we know that that money did not go towards caring for their children. Prior to adopting their six children that Jen paraded all over her Facebook page, they actually had a foster child before that. Lee was a 15-year-old girl at the time, and she described herself as a tomboy who was mostly uncomfortable and shy. Lee had been put into foster care multiple times throughout her life, and this time it was due to truancy, meaning she was not attending school. In an interview with the Seattle Times, Lee recalled that she moved into the Hearts home sometime in summer of 2004, before her junior year of high school, and she stayed until about spring. Sarah and Jen were in their mid-20s and just a few years out of Northern State University in South Dakota. For the first six months, it was really good, said Lee, who shared her memories by phone and email. We went camping, we went to events, we kept busy. We did a lot of things that I had never really done before. Pictures show them together smiling, and even on amusement park rides. A co-worker at the time, Jordy Smith, recalls that Jen and Sarah would constantly complain about how Lee behaved, saying that she was very difficult to deal with and eating out of trash cans. Lee denied that that ever happened. She's never eaten out of a trash can. And she even said that hearing that they were claiming that really hurt her. She said that she wasn't deprived of food, as allegations suggested the adoptive children may have been, and she was never hit. I don't know what to think, she said, of her reactions upon hearing about the allegations involving the other children. I still don't know what to think. One thing that did surprise Lee was that Sarah was the one that was charged with domestic assault. She recalled Jen being more moody, and she recalled Jen being the one who would frequently fight with her over very small things. She told the Seattle Times that one day the threesome went to a Green Bay Packers game. They all brought footballs hoping to have them signed by the star running back, and Jen, in particular, was a huge fan of him. But when they 
approached him after the game holding up their footballs. He picked the teen's football to sign. It turned into this huge fiasco, Lee said. Jen thought that she had done it on purpose to be a brat, and she ignored Lee for days. She wasn't allowed to leave the house unless it was for work or school. They had pushed her to get a job to, quote, learn responsibility, and when she would ask to hang out with her friends from school, as teenagers do, the hearts would always tell her no. Lee also explained that Sarah and Jen were around 26 at the time and probably weren't ready to foster a teenager. When Jen and Sarah were preparing to adopt their first set of siblings, they showed the pictures to Lee and told her that she had to prepare because she was going to be a big sister. Lee was really excited. They told her that she needed to be a good influence for them. Prior to their trip to Texas to pick up the three children, they dropped Lee off at an appointment with a therapist and never picked her up. The therapist she was seeing told her that she was being placed with a different family immediately. All of her belongings were already with the new family. She never heard from Sarah or Jen ever again. They didn't even say goodbye. Now, I understand that placements don't always work out in foster care, but realistically, that needs to be a conversation that's had so that the child, the teen, whoever, can actually attempt to understand what's happening and have time to process that. And this seems extremely cruel and selfish. Situations like these just have the potential to cause lasting trauma and further feelings of abandonment. And as expected, Lee said that she was devastated. But, light at the end of the tunnel here, she did explain that she went on to a new family and her new foster father really taught her a lot about forgiveness and acceptance and that it was really a much better situation for her to be in. In September 2008, Abigail, born in 2003, Hannah, born in 2002, and Marcus, born in 1989, were all adopted by Jen and Sarah Hart from Colorado County, Texas. In June 2008, they adopted Sierra, born in 2005, Devante, born in 2002, and Jeremiah, born in 2004, all three siblings from the Houston area. Their biological mother, Sherry Davis, lost custody due to substance abuse problems in August of 2007. The children were then given to their parental aunt under the condition that they would have no contact with their mother. But one day, their aunt had to pick up an extra shift at work, and she allowed their mother to watch the children until she got home. Now, because of this, the children were removed from the aunt's care, and this prevented her from getting permanent custody, which she was fighting for. And that is heartbreaking. Now, one thing that I found very interesting, and not a lot of publications and not a lot of sources in my research for this episode really talked about this, but I do think that it is something that needs to be said. There were actually four Davis children, not just three. So four of them were put into foster care, but the oldest, Dante, was not adopted by the heart. And they said that it was because of his violent behavior. At just eight years old, when Dante Davis and his siblings were removed from the home in 2005, he acted out. After being separated from his siblings, he was shuffled between foster homes and shelters, institutionalized in a psychiatric ward, and then placed in a restrictive treatment center. By age 19, Dante was in a Texas prison serving three years for robbery. In an interview with the Washington Post, he said that he didn't find out about his siblings' death until after he was released from prison, six months after their lives were taken. He said he didn't cry when he found out. He just went cold. He said, that was going to be my last little bit of hope in life, you know, that I had when I was going to see my family again. One day, we were just going to kick it. I used to cry sometimes thinking about what we would do when we were all growing up. If you looked at Jen's Facebook page, you'd probably think at first glance, wow, this is a really happy family. They're going to festivals. They're all about love. A gay couple adopting six black kids from foster care. It's just 
absolutely wonderful. They just seemed so happy. However, after scrolling for just a few minutes and reading through some of the posts, they reek of virtue signaling, and half of them could be top-rated posts on the That Happens subreddit, which if you're not aware what that subreddit is, go check it out. It is hilarious. Now, what I mean when I say that is that it's full of posts of just completely manufactured dialogue. She would post about these conversations where her kids, you know, stuck up for racism or proved someone wrong. And, and sure, that's great and makes you feel good, but it's weird if it never actually happened. Jen gained a Facebook following after the picture of 12-year-old Devante hugging a police officer during a protest went viral in 2014. The picture became known as the hug felt around the world. Now, you might not know what picture I'm talking about right away, but if you go over to the Instagram page, you'll see the picture in the post for this episode, and you will most likely remember the picture that I'm talking about. At first, I didn't remember it just reading about it, and then I saw it, and I was like, oh yeah, I remember seeing that. Now, sources say that attention that they got from that viral moment was very overwhelming for Jen. Allegedly, they were contacted by producers to have their own reality show, and even Good Morning America wanted to interview Devante. And Devante specifically got a lot more interview requests as well. However, Jen declined every offer, saying that she didn't want anyone interfering in her children's lives. I personally think that Jen wanted to maintain control over her children and wanted to be able to continue to abuse them while painting this perfect life on Facebook for the world to see. One thing that's interesting is the topic of family vloggers on YouTube, right? Many of them, most of them really, do not do it right. It's weird, it's gross, it's clickbaity, and they're exploiting their children for money, internet attention, fame. It can really mess up those children. As many of you know, children cannot give informed consent to even being on the internet. There are creeps on the internet. It's really just not safe. Um, there are a lot of great channels that highlight that, and there are a lot of gross channels on YouTube that highlight that as well. Now, I do think that if YouTube was popular back then, which it it was, but realistically it wasn't as popular as it is now, family vlogging wasn't as popular either. But if it was, I do think that Jen and Sarah would have been the type of family vloggers that did exploit their children for their own financial gain and attention because then she would still have that type of control opposed to having a reality show production crew coming in and seeing how she disciplines her children and ultimately being able to intervene. That definitely sounds like a show that would have been on TLC, huh? Now, Jen's Facebook posts, which I'll have a few of them on the Instagram page as well, they really, like I said, just reeked of virtue signaling. Now, you might have heard that phrase before, but if you don't know what that means, virtue signaling is the action or practice of publicly expressing opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or the moral correctness of one's position on a particular issue. And yes, that is strictly the, the official definition of it. Now, an example of that, a great example of that, especially in marketing, would be during Pride Month, during June, when all of these brands and all of these companies change their profile picture to a rainbow version of their logo, or they come out with products and they just slap a rainbow on it. And all the while throughout the year, every other month but June, you don't really hear anything from them. You don't really see them being inclusive or accepting or helping to break down stigmas. And a lot of times it is essentially just a cash grab. If you really want to be an ally, if you really want to be seen as a brand or company or person who isn't virtue signaling, have that same energy in July or May or every month of the year. 
year for that matter. Again, doesn't really have to do what we're talking about, but that is just a prevalent example that I can give you right now. Um, now also I wanna talk about the white savior complex as well, because this really bothered me. The white savior complex is a term used to describe white people who consider themselves wonderful helpers to black, indigenous, and people of color, BIPOC, but they quote, help for the wrong reasons and can sometimes end up doing more to hurt them instead of helping them. Now, Jennifer and Sarah took their children to festivals and concerts all about love and hugs and even went to Bernie Sanders rallies and were actually positioned purposely by his campaign manager, positioned right behind him on stage at one of his rallies. But they really focused on love and hugs and embracing each other. And that's wonderful. However, if you are going to adopt Black children or children of any race other than your own, you need to be prepared. Having conversations about race, having a support system for them and other Black people or other people of the same race that they are can be so helpful for these children. Prior to adopting the six children, they did say that they found resources and people and organizations for the children to be a part of. And the hearts represented themselves so well, in fact, and so prepared that a caseworker even signed off on them and recommended and wrote them a glowing review and recommended that they have the opportunity to adopt more Black children. And I think that really just shows how well they had almost everyone fooled, or rather the right people fooled. But of course, they never followed through with any of this. The children didn't hang out with friends because they didn't have any, and they didn't leave the house unless it was for a family outing that, of course, was going to be documented all over Facebook. Jennifer and Sarah really seemed to cut off their children from the rest of the world. And of course, that is a huge red flag. Although they were all smiles on Facebook, as we've discussed, it was just a facade. Many people that knew the family after the fact said that looking back, it does seem like the children were very well trained. They would engage with you when they were supposed to, like an actor in front of a camera. And just like an actor, when the camera stops rolling, the smile falls and they looked empty. In 2008, while living in Minnesota, one of Hannah's teachers noticed bruises on her left arm. Hannah told her that Jennifer had hit her with a belt. Now keep in mind, Hannah and her set of siblings were placed in the home in September of 2008. So this would have had to happen in the fall semester of school of 2008, which means that the abuse started right away. Hannah was only six at the time. A few months after that, all of the Hart children were pulled from the public school system for a year. The children returned to school in 2009. And in 2010, Abigail, who would have been seven years old at the time, told a teacher that she had owies on her back and stomach. And she stated that she felt threatened by the hearts. These owies were bruises covering Hannah from sternum to hips. When questioned, Sarah and Jennifer said that they were disciplining her and it, quote, got out of hand. They beat her and held her head in cold water, pushing their hands down on her neck. And this was all because Abigail was holding a penny that she said she found on the ground. They didn't believe her and assumed that she stole it. How many times have you been walking anywhere throughout your life, anywhere at all, and you look down and you see a penny, right? That's happened to ev everyone in the world at least a thousand times throughout their life. It's truly unbelievable to me that they refused to believe her and then they beat her over a penny and att attempted to drown her or waterboard her over one cent, literally one cent. After this incident, the authorities became involved. All of the children claimed that they had been spanked constantly and deprived of food. Sarah took responsibility for the abuse. She pled guilty to assault and was sentenced to community service 
for a year. The children were not taken away, and she was just given a slap on the wrist. One year after that, Hannah reportedly told a school nurse that she had not eaten all day. When the nurse called to talk to Sarah about it, she claimed that Hannah was just, quote, playing the food card and recommended that she just give her water. For the life of me, I have no idea what playing the food card means. I don't I have never heard that's a card that you could pull. Uh, Maybe it means something along the lines of she was just wanting attention. I have no idea though. So in the comments on Instagram under this episode's post or even on YouTube, please let me know. What do you think playing the food card means? Also, as usual, please leave your theories and all that over on YouTube and Instagram as well. So soon after this incident with Hannah, all six children were taken out of public school and were homeschooled from then on. Imagine how scared they were, not having a break from their parents, not having a break from the abuse every day, not having anyone to engage with, and not having anyone to hopefully see the signs of abuse and save them, being completely isolated. This should have been a major red flag, and it was, but it was ignored like many, many other things in this story. An online friend of Jen's said that she spent hours and hours and hours each day playing an online game. Later on, when he had heard that she had kids and that they were homeschooled, he was absolutely shocked. And he doubted that there was any homeschooling even happening in that house with how many hours she spent on that game every single day. It really does seem like Jen was living in her own reality. Post a picture make a Facebook post, a long caption about how essentially how great of a parent she is, how she's raising these beautiful black children to love and how she saved them from foster care and how they celebrate everything and how essentially that they're changing the world and ending racism with hugs and love and flowers. So she just posts that and then that's her parenting for the day. Starve your children, don't feed them make them read books all day, and then just play your game. The gamer friend that she had also stated that she did spend a lot of money on the game as well. And that same online friend discussed in an interview too, and you could really hear in his voice just how upset he sounded and how disappointed he sounded. He explained that she spent quite a lot of money on the game that she was playing, and he just sounded so sad. And he said, that money should have gone to the children. Her time should have gone to the children, not to that game. The Hearts moved from Minnesota to Oregon in mid to late 2013. Oregon authorities were notified of the abuse allegations that happened in Minnesota. Their investigation included interviewing everyone in the household separately, as well as interviewing people that the family knew. Two friends stated that the children were forced to raise their hand before speaking and that they could not wish each other a happy birthday and that they were not allowed to laugh at the dinner table. There were other reports that the children were poorly fed and looked small for their ages. One family friend reported that Jennifer had ordered pizza one night for the children, but each was only allowed to have a small slice. When Jennifer discovered that the entire pizza was gone, she punished all of the children by not feeding them breakfast and forcing them to lie on a mattress pad with eye masks on in silence for over five hours. Other friends of the family also stated that the children acted scared to death of Jen and compared them to trained robots. 
Also in 2013, a friend of the heart said that she witnessed, quote, what I felt to be controlling emotional abuse and cruel punishment towards the six children. During two stays at her home, the second one lasting for two weeks, who hosts someone for two weeks? That's crazy. I don't want anyone at my house. The parents withheld food from their children and punished them for normal childhood behaviors. All of the children appeared very thin, and she compared what she saw to a regimented boot camp where true kindness, love, and respect for the children was largely absent which is a huge contrast from what Jen posted all over social media. A former friend says that one of the caseworkers who visited the home told her that it was obvious that the children had been coached by their parents on exactly what to say and what to tell investigators. Interviewed individually, each child gave an identical account of how they were treated, she said. The interviews of the children themselves revealed no new incidents of abuse, nor did they mention anything that had happened in Minnesota. And of course they didn't because they're terrified of their mothers. When Jen was interviewed, she played the part of white savior and of a victim and said that the family problems were the result of others not being tolerant of two lesbian mothers with six African-American children. This is absolutely a beautiful example, and by beautiful I mean awful, example of a straw man fallacy and a deflection. You abusing your children has nothing to do with you being gay or you having black children. But unfortunately, and of course, the investigation was inconclusive and they stated that they weren't able to make a determination whether the hearts were guilty of anything or whether there was a safety threat. In 2017, they moved to Washington. It seems as though they were moving often to try to outrun the ongoing allegations. In August 2017, Hannah, who was just 15 years old at the time, jumped out of her second-story bedroom window around 1.30 a.m. She went next door to the neighbor's house, Bruce and Dana DeKalb. The DeKalb said that Hannah begged them not to make her go back and that the hearts were racist and abusing them. Dana claims that Jen and Sarah entered her home without permission, looking for Hannah. After finding her, she told Hannah to apologize and tell Dana that she just had a very stressful week. Dana DeKalb was interviewed for the Broken Hearts podcast and said that Hannah didn't even look at her the entire time her mom was leaving the house. All she said was, yes, ma'am, and they left. The following day, Jennifer attempted to explain the incident by claiming that Hannah was lying and that the children occasionally acted out because they were, quote, drug babies, and Hannah's biological mother was bipolar. Jen and Sarah also made Hannah write a note to the DeKalbs, which I will have over on the Instagram page. After that incident, Dana kept an eye out. As she put it, she was basically stalking them. She wanted to get any chance that she could to talk to one of the children. But after that incident with Hannah, the curtains were always shut and the children were rarely outside. She said that whenever they were in the driveway or going from the car to the house, Jen would walk around the car, open up all the doors, and then the children would march in a single file line back up to the house. Not only is that strange and creepy, but that does remind me of that one couple that also had a bunch of kids, but they were like chained to walls and stuff and they would make their kids march in circles in their front yard. That was also weird. Dana would even wait to take her trash cans down to the main road until she saw Devante doing the same. One day she was able to walk down to the road with him. She tried to spark up a conversation and gain a little bit of trust, but by the time they came back up the road to their houses, she said, have a good night, and he hurriedly said, yes, ma'am, and just rushed back to his house with his head down. Dana looked over at the house and saw that Jen was waiting on the front steps. Jen yelled at Devante and closed the front door 
behind her, leaving him outside on the front steps. It had started raining. Dana said from then on, she never saw any of the children taking the trash can down to the road. She thought that she had missed her chance and she would never be able to talk to any of the children ever again. But to her surprise, in spring of 2018, Devante showed up at their doorstep asking for food. At first, it was a few tortillas. And then the next day, he asked for a few more tortillas, which Dana thought was strange because she just gave him a stack of them the night before. What was he doing with it? Why did he need a bunch more tortillas again? Dana used these opportunities to gain his trust and ask a few questions each time. She even tried to invite him in, but he refused. After a few more visits, he told them that Jen and Sarah were withholding food as punishment and hitting them. Dana and her husband, Bruce, tried to explain to Devante that there isn't anything that they could have done that would warrant them not only being beaten, but being starved. The final few times Devante went to the DeKalb's home, he asked specifically for non-perishable foods and a good amount of it. He asked for bread, tortillas, peanut butter, cured meat. He kept saying that he wanted food that wasn't going to go bad. Dana recalls thinking that maybe Devante was planning to run away. After hearing from Devante that they were, in fact, being abused and the incident with Hannah, Bruce and Dana decided to report the hearts to both the police and the Washington State Department of Social and Health Services. Caseworkers from DSHS tried to reach the hearts twice, once on March 23rd, 2018, three days before the murders, and once on the day of the murders. It's suspected that the hearts left in the middle of the night on March 23rd or early in the morning on March 24th. According to police, they were traveling in their 2003 GMC Yukon XL in or around Newport, Oregon around 8.15 a.m., which is a roughly three-hour drive south of their home in Woodland, Washington. The next day, on March 25th, Jennifer Hart is seen in a hoodie in a safe way on their surveillance footage in Fort Bragg. The family remained in that area until about 9 p.m., authorities said. And then their movements after that are unknown, except when the car is spotted, flipped at the bottom of the cliff. On March 26th, a welfare check is conducted at the request of Child Protective Services as they couldn't get anyone to answer the door previously. Later that day, the Hart family SUV is seen upside down on the rocky shoreline at the bottom of a 100-foot cliff in Mendocino County, California, about 180 miles north of San Francisco. The authorities are called to the scene. The bodies of Jennifer and Sarah Hart are found inside the vehicle, Jennifer behind the wheel, and Sarah in the passenger seat. Three of the children, Marcus, 19, Jeremiah, 14, Abigail, 14, Sierra, 14, are found deceased outside of the car or a couple hundred yards away from the car. After realizing that two children were not accounted for, the sheriff's office launched a search and rescue effort along the coastline. And even after looking at pictures of the scene, I couldn't even see the SUV at first since it's flipped over and it almost blends in with the rocks. I'll put that picture on Instagram. You can see the you can see the cliff kind of and then in the bottom corner, you can see the like the black bottom of the car that's flipped. So just be on the lookout for that. The partial skeletal remains of Hannah, 16, washed ashore weeks later. It was just her foot that was still in her shoe. However, Devante was never and has still never till this day been located. On April 3rd, 2018, a superior court judge ruled that Devante was in the vehicle at the time of the crash and a death certificate was signed declaring him officially deceased. California investigators believe that the SUV was in the ocean for some time because water had pulled and grown warm inside the wheel wells. The high tide likely carried all of the children out of the SUV and several hundred yards away from the wreckage. After investigating and analyzing the SUV's internal computer, it was determined that the Yukon had been intentionally driven off the edge of the cliff from a standing stop, accelerating 20 miles an hour, 
in three seconds with the throttle at 100%, meaning Jennifer pulled off the road, fully stopped, and then floored it over the cliff intentionally. There was no swerving. There was no accident. She did it on purpose. A witness who was camping nearby told the jury that he heard a car engine revving and screeching out around 3 p.m. local time. A 14-member jury ruled the case a murder-suicide. Toxicology results showed that Jennifer's blood alcohol level was well over the legal limit at the time of the crash. Officials also reported that Sarah and the children had diphenhydramine, I probably butchered saying that, sorry, basically the active ingredient in Benadryl, but that they had that in their symptoms and high doses of it. Benadryl and generic versions of that medication are known to cause drowsiness, and if you take a enough of it, it very well could knock you out. After their deaths, the truth started to come forward. More and more people were sharing their experiences with the family that at the time didn't seem off, but after the incident, they're realizing how many red flags there really were, including Sarah's co-workers. One even made a comment to Sarah after witnessing a phone conversation between the two, and she said, wow, it's like you're a battered wife. And Sarah looked back at her and said, I know. Also on Sarah's Cole's name tag, Jennifer had her put tape right under her name because it said where she was from. And Jennifer had her do that because she didn't want anyone else knowing where they were from, which is weird. Who cares where you're from? But of course, it might be because they didn't want anyone to look up maybe previous allegations, previous rulings. Maybe. Gaming friends of Jennifer's described her as bossy, controlling, and one of them even referred to her as a cold-blooded narcissist. Emails retrieved from the couple's Apple laptop included an email from Jen to a friend in March of 2009, about six months after the adoption, saying that Sarah was trying to get pregnant using a sperm donor. In an email later that year in July, Jennifer told a friend that Sarah was pregnant, but that the doctor couldn't find the heartbeat. The couple ended up losing the baby, suffering a miscarriage a year after adopting six children. And that could have been what really sent them down this dark path with absolutely sinister intentions. Jennifer also confided in friends via email that she didn't feel appreciated and that Sarah was taking their relationship for granted. Sometimes she even felt unloved. She said that ultimately she knows that Sarah loves her and loves the kids, but she's just horrible at showing it. Jen went further and complained about Sarah's role as a parent, saying, as a mom, I have felt like I've been raising these kids on my own. In another email, she said that she needs a break and that she tried to explain to Sarah that she needs a break. Now, it's unclear if she meant a break from the kids, a break from being a full-time mom, or a break from their relationship or their life in general. One of their friends described Jennifer as manipulative, controlling, and delusional. Prior to fleeing their home, Jennifer had posted on Facebook saying that the living room was full of plants and how much the children were enjoying them and reading books to them. When authorities searched the home, there were no plants in the living room. In a house with six children, you'd think that there would be more than just two bedrooms for them and more than just one twin bed for six children. Records from the Clark County Sheriff's Office show that investigators really couldn't figure out where the children slept in the Woodland, Washington home. There were three bedrooms that shared one bathroom on the second level of their split-level home. Sarah and Jen's bedroom had a double bed in it. In another bedroom, there were two foam love seats, the cheap kind that you maybe would see in a college dorm room, and on the floor was a padded mat. And that's where police believe that some of the children may have slept. And in the third bedroom, which is the last bedroom, there was one twin bed, and it was surrounded by a bunch of like remodeling supplies. Why not just get bunk beds? I think maybe this was another form of punishment. Maybe they all had separate beds when they first became a part of the Hart family, but then punishments just got worse and worse and worse. 
Investigators found records in the Hart home that proved money was tight for the Hart family and that the children were really their prized pigs. Two of the children received payments from their stepfather from their birth family, totaling around $11,000 a year, which I did not know that that happens after you've already adopted someone, but I guess it does. They also received as much as $41,000 a year from the state of Texas intended for caring for the children. And Sarah brought home around $45,000 a year as an assistant manager at Kohl's. When further searching the home, police found chest freezers, you know, the kind that's like in a basement that you put a body in. There were no bodies in it, but it's just a good way to describe it, I guess. Uh, they found that the freezers were full of the food that Devante had been sneaking from the neighbors, which is really sad because I wish they wouldn't have found that. And then I would have still believed that he ran away and tried to get help. They found the home to be very clean, very tidy, except for a few dishes in the sink and then maybe, you know, a few piles of laundry in the laundry room. What they didn't find were family photos anywhere in the home. No keepsakes, posters, no little knickknack, no personal objects at all, no decorations, nothing that would lead you to believe that children or teenagers lived in the home at all, especially in the bedrooms. There was nothing in the bedrooms for them. Also, there were six chairs at the dining table for a family of eight. Jen would post on Facebook about how they're all vegetarians, but as we know now, Jen Hart was not a very reliable narrator. Clark County investigators found the family's fridge and freezer to be stocked with hot dogs, ham, packs of chicken breast, large amounts of ground beef, corn dogs, pizza rolls, and much more food that is absolutely not vegetarian. A close friend told the Oregonian slash Oregon Live weeks after the crash that Jennifer Hart did not drink, but Sarah did occasionally. Police photos showed 17 bottles of wine displayed on kitchen counters. The couple also had a container of recreational marijuana and a small pipe on the dresser in the bedroom. Neighbors said that the family appeared to keep to themselves and didn't seem to have any guests at all. In May 2013, Jennifer posted on social media that they kept their children away from electronic screens, instead focusing on camping, gardening, reading books, and caring for animals. She wrote, traded in the television for the best screen available, planet Earth. Are your eyes rolling? Mine are too. Police found a large screen TV in the family's common space and a tablet and a laptop in the home. It's like that episode of the Kardashians when Courtney's talking about how she doesn't have a TV or doesn't watch TV. And Chloe says, who cares? You don't get a reward because you watch less TV. And it's true. Now, there are many theories with this case. And I, of course, have my own. Many believe that Sarah and Jen were trying to run away from their debt. According to the Clark County documents, they had accumulated more than $21,000 in credit card debt which doesn't seem like enough credit card debt to, you know, murder eight people over. There's also a theory that one of them was terminally ill, most lean towards Jen being terminally ill, and then they just decided to end it for all of them. Kind of the mindset of, if I can't have my children, no one can. Now, it's no secret that Devante was their favorite child, and some people think that after the caseworker visited the home and the family didn't answer the door, Devante was blamed for that since he had previously talked to the neighbors. A physical punishment could have taken place and, quote, gotten out of hand, just like they had previously described about their past abuse, and he could have been killed. They snapped, fled in the middle of the night, and then just decided to end it all. However, that doesn't really answer the question of where is Devante? Like, it, where is his body? If they killed him on the property and then left in such a hurry, the extensive search that they did of the property, because there was about two acres, would have uncovered something, blood, a struggle, a body, anything. 
Now, Devante was a little bit bigger than Hannah, so I think he was also carried out of the car by the high tide and pulled out to sea. If he was heavier, he, you know, if he was also pulled out into, you know, the open water, then he could have just, you know, stayed out there longer and maybe the tide didn't bring him in. And so there is a possibility that he would have never washed ashore. However, Devante could still be on the run. It's just me being a little bit of a little bit of a positive patty here, but his possible timeline to run away, which we don't know if he even had a plan to run away, but why else are you hoarding food? And you could say it could have just been for, you know, him and his siblings to eat, but I don't know. I think he was planning on running away. Then again, I don't think he would have left his siblings, but maybe, you know, he was thinking if I could just get away, I could go ask for help or I could, you know, save everyone. If he was planning on running away or if he did run away, I, I don't think any of them ever would have thought that Jen and Sarah would have done what they did. So like I said, maybe that hypothetical timeline to run away could have had to have been moved up by the caseworker coming by. But like I said, I don't think he would have left his siblings. Now I used to be really on on team runaway. I really was convinced that Devante made a run for it and he was hoarding food to take with him. And he was able to actually get out like he did many times undetected by his mothers every time he went to the DeKalb's house. Maybe when the hearts realized that he was gone and they couldn't outrun the caseworkers and the abuse allegations forever, they just decided to put the kids in the car and take the car over a cliff. Now, some people are still of the belief that the crash was a spur of the moment decision. But with the timing of the caseworker visits, I think Jen made that plan that weekend told Sarah to call off work, put the kids in the car, and she knew exactly what she was going to do when she pulled out of the driveway. Where would she have gotten this idea, though, to end their lives this way? This wasn't the first time that Jennifer had flipped her car with all of her children inside of it. In a Facebook post, Jennifer details a car accident that her and the kids were involved in while in Missoula, Montana, on December 23rd, 2012. She was driving the same car, the Yukon that she drove off the cliff. She wrote, once, twice, three times. Finally, we crashed into the side of the gently sloping mountain in what was most likely seconds. So many inexplicable thoughts ran through my mind. Was I dead? There was no way we all could have survived such an incident. I unclenched my fist from the steering wheel, brushed off the glass, and turned my head back around to see all six kids hanging upside down. Are you okay? Every single child was safely secured by their seatbelts. Six years after that accident, in the same SUV, the SUV that she drove over the cliff, none of the passengers inside that car were wearing seatbelts. Now, before I end today's episode, which has most likely been the longest episode I have ever done, I know, I wouldn't feel right if I didn't mention this. I'm white. Shocker. I know. I have never dealt with anything, had any experience in the foster care system. I know and I can acknowledge that I'm not the best person to discuss racism, racial issues, especially the racism and abuse that's been plaguing our aftercare system. However, I do feel as though I'd be doing a disservice to the heart children if I didn't mention this and provide documentation and sources for all of this in this episode. Black children continue to be disproportionately represented in foster care. According to data provided by the Annie R. Casey Foundation Kids Count Data Center, black children were 13.71% of the U.S.'s total population, yet 22.75% of children in foster care are black. I'll have a chart showing this data on Instagram for the post for this episode, along with pictures of the family and, like I said, the car and the house and what it looked like and all that as well. And sources for all of this data, this information, everything I found researching will be in the show notes 
and then also in the description box on YouTube. The pipeline that feeds youth into the foster care system and juvenile justice facilities into the adult criminal legal system has an especially harmful impact. As of 2015, Black youth were five times as likely as white youth to be detained or committed to juvenile justice facilities. In 2019, the Kansas City Star surveyed nearly 6,000 incarcerated people in 12 states. One in four reported that they had been in foster care, and Black children are separated from their families and placed in foster care at a far higher rate than white children, often repeatedly. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Down a Rabbit Hole with CC Suarez. Please follow us on Instagram at Down a Rabbit Hole Podcast. And if you have any suggestions, anything you'd like to share, we can be contacted at Down a Rabbit Hole Podcast at gmail.com. All of that is linked in the show notes wherever you listen to your podcasts, and then also in the description box on the CC Suarez YouTube channel as well. All sources for this episode, of course, are linked down below. If you do have a chance, please go ahead and rate and review on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. The Down a Rabbit Hole podcast is produced, written, and researched by Chelsea Suarez and Tony Suarez. Executive producer, Wiggum Suarez. Also, as always, a huge thank you to our channel members on YouTube. Without you, this podcast would not even exist. So thank you so much to our YouTube channel members. If you would like to become a YouTube channel member, go ahead and go over to the CC Suarez YouTube channel and click the join button right next to the subscribe button. As always, we appreciate you. Please pay attention to red flags and stay spicy, and we'll see you in our next episode.